Bibles to, we're not starting here. Yeah, Matthew six. Matthew six. And we'll continue. Uh, it's still just a, a bit of review on catching up to where we left off in our study of the Lord's Prayer, and uh, so uh, we will continue. And so with that, let's uh, open up in prayer. Let's get right into it. Let's thank God for our time together to hear and study His Word and to be grateful and uh, good students of his word as we study. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our great God, thank you for another opportunity to be together and to hear your word, to read your word, to grow in grace and knowledge by the work of your spirit, to be able to worship you and praise you for who you are through your un- our understanding of you, which comes by means of your word. The spirit that you have given us, your the Holy Spirit, who is God, is in us to guide and teach us, to show us what the scripture means, to implant it upon our hearts. We thank you for him and we thank you for that supernatural ability that each believer has to understand And so, Father, as we learn and grow in grace and knowledge and we hopefully commit what we learn of the truth to our lives and to action, that we ask, Father, that you humble us and open our eyes to the truth. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. Um, One of the things that, that happens, unfortunately, in Christianity, because Christianity is knowledge-based. We see the word knowledge uh, all throughout the scripture. Uh, and the we are, the only way that we can know God is through his word. So the word has to be studied. And that by that, the, the knowledge of God, all of us have to depend upon knowledge to know God, the knowledge of his word uh, throughout the entire Bible, Old Testament and New. And what can happen, and as with, with all things that uh, come to us from God, they can all be abused in certain ways, and it's it's dangerous to do that because someone can say, I have knowledge, uh, and a lot of knowledge, and they could show that. You know, they could spew off scripture, they could state how much they know, and maybe they know a lot, but if we don't apply that, if if the knowledge doesn't change our thinking and our behavior, then what good is it? And, and that's kind of the, the point here that is brought out in, in this prayer, the Lord's Prayer. If we just say the prayer and the things in the prayer over time are not things that become more and more a reality in each of our lives, then what is the point of praying it? I mean, are we to be like the Catholics are, that we get our beads out and we just say the prayer over and over and over again? Yeah, interspersed with the Hail Mary, of course, according to the the dogma. Um, and, and, you know, so uh, one of the, the privileges I had when in Maui, uh, uh, we were there two Sundays, and uh, in the, which, I, you know, was lamenting to me because I didn't want to miss two Sundays here. Uh, but I was there for two Sundays, and so we looked for a church close by, and there was a church that the pastor is Greg Laurie, uh, who is a man that I've known. I've, I've read his work. Uh, I've seen him speak. He's, uh, he's like us. He believes what we believe, and he's a wonderful teacher. And I find out that he's not actually at the church in Maui. The church is a satellite of his church uh, called Harvest in California, his church in California. He's got a big church in California. 
uh, and he's published a lot of books. He's a great teacher. And so what happens at the church in Maui is that uh, after some singing and some announcements and introductions, that they play his Sunday sermon on their screen. Uh, there's a big screen up front. There's multiple monitors all throughout. There's probably 200 people there outdoors. Right on, I don't know what hole it was on, but the, one of the greens to the Kapalua golf course, which is across the street is where they play the pro tournament uh, that was on the, just two weekends ago. And the golf course is right there. And right off the green is this building that where they gather. It's amazing. Outdoor church. <laughs> of course, they're in Maui. If you had an outdoor church here, we'd all be dead. But uh, And he said something. you know. So I get to watch. Twice we went there. And the first time was so good that we went back. And a pastor, Greg Laurie, said this. Said, I'm summarizing because I... You know, I didn't have a notebook or anything to write it down, but I, re- I remember it mostly. Is that he said, look, and he was talking about, um, he was in James 3 talking about speech, you know, how we're to say what, uh, we're, we're to use our tongue. If you know the passage, the, the tongue is a, a flame, a spark that can start a forest fire and it's set on fire by hell. And that the, what we say can be very detrimental and very hurtful or very encouraging. And Pastor Laurie said something to the effect that if your knowledge is not changing you, it's not worth much. So if your knowledge is not changing you, it's not worth much. And then it's, it's simple and profound. And if all the knowledge I'm learning from the Scripture is not actually changing me, then what, what worth is it? And someone might say, well then therefore it must be the fault of the Scripture. But it can't be because the Scripture is God-breathed. And the Scripture has changed people's lives, countless lives over the centuries. But in some cases, the knowledge of the Scripture isn't changing anything in some people. They continue, they'll say prayers because, you know, they either memorize them, they could say the Lord's Prayer, they memorize it, but they're, they're they're still the bitter... People who are uh, or uh, addicted people, or uh, and I'm, I'm not, I know things take time to overcome. I'm not saying that if you have knowledge of God uh, or knowledge of His Word that you're going to change overnight, or even in a week or a month. But it, in, after a while, though, if I have been, if I could say, in, you know, to, as I look in the mirror of God, of God's glory. If, I'm, if my knowledge isn't changing me, then what is it worth? And the problem would rest with me. You know, uh, think of the Exodus generation. We talked about them a little bit yesterday. When they got into the wilderness, why didn't they change? They saw ten plagues. They saw the Red Sea split. They saw the Egyptian army drowned. They saw God's miracles again and again and again. Why didn't they change? And uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us clearly that they didn't mix God's word with faith. They knew it. You know, to that point so far, they knew what Moses had told them. They stood at Mount Sinai and heard the law, at least the Ten Commandments and part of the law. But why didn't it change them? They, they heard Caleb and Joshua coming back with the twelve spies saying, we can take them. If we can do this, they'll fall before us because we have God. And why didn't they, why didn't they change? And it's because they didn't mix the word of God with faith. The things that we're praying in this prayer are eternal and monumental. They're life-changing if faith is mixed with them. But the creator of the universe is my very father, and that heaven is my destiny, and that his kingdom I am a member of, and that his will, which is God's wisdom, the infinite wisdom of God, is my very option that I can take, that all of us as believers can do. Each of us has the Holy Spirit. There's nothing about the will of God that we can't do. Then, you know, it's exciting. And my faith mixed with it uh, would change me. As it says in Colossians 2, 
Uh, Paul says to the Colossians, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you are living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees in accordance with the teaching of men? In other words, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, he said to the Colossians, why would you live under the principles of the world? And in that passage, Paul says, yeah, they sound like we're wis- it sounds like wisdom, but it's not. And Paul says that wisdom of the world doesn't change anyone. People don't change under world things. I mean, at the core of themselves. But with God's Word, with your faith in it, you know, you would change. So, if you're still living as a worldly person, as a Christian, after many years of learning, you're still living as a worldly person, and that's for you to decide between you and God, then your knowledge isn't worth much. And one of the ways in which Christians continue to live in worldly affairs is in the desire for worldly treasure. And all of us, I think no matter how mature we are, all of us are are in danger of this because we're all attracted at some level to sparkly things, piles of money, although people don't have that anymore. They just, you know, you open up. (laughs) I think about this because now we the the church has an account in maps upstairs and that that account has a certain amount of money in it and that account is under my name because I'm the president of it's under Grace Truth Ministries so when I open my I have a personal account in maps and so when, which doesn't have that much in it no complaints that's not a complaint but when I open up my account at maps every time I go whoa and then I go oh right right because it shows a total at the bottom. There's three accounts there, and one of them isn't mine. It's the church's. And when I, the thing you look at, I just look at all the zeros at the bottom. Well, I mean, there aren't like 12 of them. <laughs> I, I wish. We wouldn't be in a basement if we had that much money. But, uh, you know, it's a lot more than I have. And what's my point there? It is that we're attracted. You're looking at a number on a computer screen, but it's your bank account. And if it's big, you know, it's attractive. We're we're all easily attracted to material, earthly things. Uh, uh, John John describes it in 1 John 2 as friendship with the world, and that in the world there is the lust of the eyes. There's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful life. And that's what he says is of the world. And then he tells us, don't be friends with the world. So if we're still living as worldly people, what is our knowledge worth? It's supposed to change us. So one of the ways in which Christians continue to live in worldly affairs is the desire for worldly treasure. Now, please... Don't think I mean that we're all to be poor. Some have interpreted it that way, that we're all to just go live on the streets or something. But I did not say that having wealth was the problem. And God doesn't say that either. God doesn't say that having wealth is the problem. God says that the desire for it, which is akin to the love of it, is the problem. The love of money. The root of all evil is not money. It's the love of money. So, you know, we say, well, if someone loves someone loves sin more than they love God, and, you know, say it's an addiction to drugs or alcohol or sex or something immoral, lewd and immoral, uh, embarrassing, and we say, yeah, you know, they love that thing more than they love God. But what about if you love something good? I, I, and I went looking. I, it's the perfect picture I, I found. I went looking. I'm, I'm going to use a lot more pictures now because I'm taking some course in how to how to be better visually. Not me personally, but the presentation. Um, and you know, the, 
a nice house. This is American dream, right? And it's a great dream. We, you know, you look at the ancient world and like ancient Rome or Greece, where 30% of the population is is slave enslaved. And it wasn't a racial thing. You could be a Greek and be a Greek slave. You could be a Jew and be a Jewish slave in Israel. Um, you know, the dream of moving from the lower class to the middle class, impossible. Talk about the impossible dream. Who is that, Frank Sinatra? Uh, anyway, so, but this, in America, this was the dream. That's why everybody wanted to come to America. Right? And, and this is true. My parents came from Ireland out of, you know, I've been to both of their original towns where they grew up. They were poor. They were poor in an agricultural economy. And when they came to America, they bettered themselves and they made money. Raised a family, bought a house, bought two houses, in fact. And lived a middle-class lifestyle, which, you know, in our modern times, it's not that there wasn't a middle class in the ancient world. I've done a bit of research on this because I had this question when looking at this passage, but uh, but it was small. There was a merchant class, an artisan class, you know, in biblical times. You know, people who were blacksmiths or artists. Uh, and they were, or, or pot, uh, uh, that worked on pottery. Uh, they, they were desired. But you could do that stuff as a slave, but the, the, the middle class in the ancient world was very small. The, what you had basically, mostly, in the ancient world was the rich and the poor and not much in between. And you see, in the, in the modern Western world, Things are returning back to that because as Satan pushes people to greed, the disparity gets bigger and the middle class shrinks. And that's exactly what we see happening now. Uh, What about good things? Can we love good things more than we love God? And the answer is yeah. The American dream is wonderful. We could love it. We could love a, a nice house, the white picket fence. How many kids does he have? He has two. Yeah, two and a dog. All right, perfect, perfect family. Nice, pay their taxes. Nice people, mow their lawn. Yeah, not uh, they. They do well, make money. Are nice people, work hard. But what if they love all of that more than they love God? There's a wonderful story in. Uh, I forgot, I put this in my note. If you're actually reading my notes, you see, I wrote myself a note there to find a story, uh, and I forgot to find it. <laughs> so if you're wondering what uh, I think means in that little note, that's why I forgot to look it up. But the story that I was thinking about that I haven't seen in a bit was uh, a man who, when the bubonic plague hit England, I think it was England, that they they didn't know the source of it, as we know. They didn't know that it came from the fleas off of rats and stuff. And so uh, he, his I think his wife died of the plague, and he took his kids, I think he had three or four kids, and he moved out of the city. He was a very wealthy man, a Christian man, wealthy man, and he would have been like this, except in England. And he moved to the countryside to get away from the city, thinking fresh air, clean air, you know, was going to, prevent them from plague. He was scared to death of losing his children as he lost his wife. This is a true story. And when he was in the countryside, because he wasn't working as he was, you know, as he had in the city, he had decided to go to church. And it was the first time he went to church in a while. And he heard a message. And the message changed his life. And what he admitted later was that, you know, he assented to God He assented that, yes, God's word was true, that God was true, and that God should be believed and obeyed, but he had forgotten God. That he really worshipped his income and his wife and his kids and his house and building this life. He became a worshiper of his life and forgot about God. And that's why in the Lord's Prayer, it starts out with, Our Father who is in heaven, holy be your name. 
Right? Before we get to the work of God, which is the kingdom of God, before we get to the wisdom of God, which is the will of God, before we get to the provisions of God, which is His bread for me every day, before we get to His forgiveness of sins, before we get to the spiritual life that we are to walk, at the front of it all is God Himself, His person. And it's His person that needs to be worshipped. Or all the other stuff becomes, well, not what it's supposed to be. You know, the work of God becomes burdensome. The, the, even the provisions of God become something that, I mean, how many of us or have, and others out there who do, just expect God to give them their provisions every day and don't thank Him for it. You know, they eat every day, they eat well. They have lives that are comfortable. They're not in danger of sickness or losing clean water, a clean water source. And yet they don't thank God for it. They've forgotten the one who provides these things. And that's why Jesus starts off with the Father. And then where we're at here in the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer, which we've spent one class on already, is about our commit, our, sorry, our contentment with the physical provisions that God has provided for us and graciously given. We are to be thankful for them, and we're to be content with them. Uh, the fourth petition, which if you look at Matthew 6.11, give us this day our daily bread. Right? What does bread refer to? Well, it refers to everything, because I, I, I'm very glad that, Christ didn't say, give us today our daily bread and water. Because it's obvious that we need water. Therefore, bread, that he only mentions, doesn't mean just bread. We need more than bread. So what does bread represent? And here, it doesn't, it doesn't represent anything other than all the physical things that we need for our bodies. And so bread would refer to everything. Everything, air, water, food, shelter, clothing. Uh, and there's other things we need physically, too, you know, to keep us from going insane. We need companionship. Uh, we need entertainment, at some, at some amount of entertainment. Uh, leisure, relaxation time. We need that. And God provides it. Uh, however... What God provides for some is more than what he provides for others. Some are born into wealth. Some are born into poverty. Some are born in the, um, the slums of India, which are horrible. Some are born in slums in America, which nothing like the slums in India. Not near as bad, but still bad. Uh, some are born to abusive parents and abusive, abusive homes. And some are born to wonderful, loving parents, Christian parents. And you can't look at it all and say, you know, as Satan wants to trick the human race with doing, uh, is this dream of making everybody equal materially. Right? That's Marxism. That's what that idiot Karl Marx dreamed up as he wasn't going to work. You know, that guy did not provide for his family. He, did, he, he was negligent to his children and his wife when they needed things. But, you know, he had his own agenda. He was not a good man. That's still a hero to some, right? But, you know, what is Marxism about? Which ended up uh, evolving into communism. And that is that we can take all the material and, and dole it out evenly. And how's it worked? Not well. You know, it creates an enormous amount of death, murder, and suffering. So when you you know looking at you know how much bread do I have compared to somebody else, if that's what I care about, then I become jealous, envious, and I'm discontent. What if I want more? I'm discontent. What if I want something else? Right? What did the ex Exodus generation have in the wilderness? They had manna. They had bread from heaven. 
And what do they want? They wanted meat. They wanted something different. That's a, that's a lesson for us. What does God provide? I want a different wife, a different husband. I want different children. I want a different house. I want a different neighborhood. I want a different job. I want more money. I want to live in a different place. I'm discontent. Right, so what this means when we pray this, and Christ here is just brilliant, is he forces us, as we're saying these words, to be content. You know, and if we're not, if we're not, when we say the words, we're lying to God. And as I said a bunch of times already in this study, when you're with God in your inner room praying, you should know that lying to him is pointless. I mean, you know, right, that you're with an omniscient God alone, one-on-one. It's not like you're talking to another person or a neighbor or someone at the market who you can lie to, and they won't know. You can't lie to God. You can, but it's, it's quite silly, asinine. So when we say, give us today our daily bread, what we're saying is, God, we are content with whatever you provide. We don't want more. And we're not going to go searching out for more. And we're not going to go out searching for something different. Whatever I have right now today, notice it's daily bread. And that's that word. I'm going to look at that again coming up soon. Uh, Daily is a tricky word, the Greek word. We don't really know exactly what it means. But the day word, hemeron in the Greek, is that it's clear. Give us today, we can take the word daily out and it still makes sense. It still says the same thing. Give us today our bread. Not tomorrow's, today's. And so are we content today? And that's, if you are, great. But I know people who are listening to me or may listen to me or to any any other thing, if you're, you're your, uh, uh, when you come across this, just reading in your Bible, there are people out there who are discontent, who are Christians, and they're not content with their lot in life. And they think to themselves, if this would only change, if that would only change, if he would only change, if she would only change, if it would only change, what, how, how much more can I go through? Then, and then I'll be content. But it's just plainly not true. So go to 1 Timothy 6. When we did a class on this, this is the passage we looked at. And it's important to repeat because, again, it has been over two weeks or just about two weeks since the last time we talked about this. Um, And this passage is about godliness. And godliness is actually about the last petition. All right, so we know the prayer well, right? Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. In Matthew's account, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. And that lead us not, well, when we see it, I'll show it to you. The Greek helps a little that we will see how that means the spiritual life. Lead us, God, not into the paths that are temptuous by the devil, but lead us on the paths of righteousness in which we stand strong against the devil. Right? When we study the armor of God, what do we see? Pick it up, put it on, stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And as the devil fires his fiery missiles at you, you have the shield of faith that blocks him. So by, by faith, I, I'm on the narrow road. I'm on the plan of God, the road of righteousness. I, I, my favorite passage on that is in Hebrews 10, is the new and living way that has been inaugurated for us when Christ opened the door to it. The new and living way was always there. It's from eternity. But Christ, it was blocked off to everybody until Christ opened the door. And you and I, as believers, have stepped through that door. But standing on the new and living way, I get to stand there doing nothing, not understanding it, not comprehending it. By, by faith, longing for what's on the other side of the door. 
the world. But I'm on this way. And so often the writers of the New Testament say, since you're on the path, walk it. It's really their argument. It's, it's wonderful. Right? No one talks about earning the way. They all talk about being on the way because of Christ and walking it. So the way is the godliness. But notice, look at 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. He says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain. We'll see what this means in a second. The gain part, we've already seen that. But, what God, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And that's what give us this day our daily bread means, to be content with what God has provided. You see, if I'm content with what God has provided, then godliness is what I seek. And the reward to godliness, the gain of godliness, is godliness itself. Because godliness has the gain of things like peace and things like joy and things like love and things like courage and power. It's all a part of that. To be godly is to be like God. To have his characteristics. To be like Christ. But what if I have a lack of contentment? I'm discontent. And that is a very serious problem for mankind. Why does advertising work so well? I, I'm baffled. When I, whenever I, I, it first dawned on me um, some years ago that the Internet, you know, <laughs> remember when the Internet came out? We're all old enough to, to be, you know, have been adults when the Internet came out. We were like, what is this thing? And it doesn't make any sense. Uh, and then I learned some years later that money was being made. And I'm like, how? By selling what? And I was told, well, by advertising. Like on the Internet? I mean, I understand advertising on TV, but on the Internet. And then, you know, as years go by and you see how they use their, they're very crafty with their advertising. Right? You look at one thing on Amazon and all of a sudden every web page you go to has that thing. You know, you're looking at a, 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 I don't know, whatever. What was I looking at prior? I, I forget. Something silly. <laughs> Something I looked at and I'm like, nah, I don't want that. And then for days. And then when we, when, when Chris and I would look, look up recipes for stuff. And that, that food item is on almost every web page I open up. I'm like, no, I already made the chicken thingy. All right? And I'm, I'm not going to make it again. Like, not today. Uh, you know, but so why are people so attracted to advertising? To and why does it work so well? Why can they sell us so much stuff, really crap, that we don't need? Is because people are discontent. They think that things are going to make them content when they're not. Uh, a lack of contentment therefore becomes a very serious problem. When people are discontent, they make terrible decisions. Uh, you know, filling your garage or your closets with stuff that you don't need, you know, the ramifications of that are probably minimum. But when you're discontent with things like people or fulfillment or relationships, you can start making some terrible decisions in the pursuit of something that you think is a source of happiness, and it's not. You end up hurting yourselves. Bad decisions accumulated over time hurt us, not just mentally but physically. And they end up hurting others as well. So we've got to learn to be content. As Paul says here, we will not gain, get the gain or whatever the profit is of godliness if we're not content. And so hence Jesus has these um, petitions set up perfectly. Bread, give us today our bread, is the physical body. Forgiveness of sins, as we'll see, I've already explained a little, but we'll see it clearly, is really a healthy mind. A mind that is not condemned, a mind that it knows it's forgiven, and you know can therefore what? If I have a healthy body and a healthy mind, and I'm content with things, then I can pursue the spiritual life with all of my heart. If I'm distracted... I'm after 
some physical thing. I'm after some mental thing. I'm guilty because of sin. Uh, I'm condemned. I won't forgive others, so I'm bitter and I'm combative with people. I I cannot be those things and be pursuing the spiritual life at the same time. And that's why here, as Paul states, which is right in line with the Lord's Prayer, the order of the Lord's Prayer, is that godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. That's how Peter, Peter's talking here about false teachers. And he calls them, he says in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 12, like unreasoning animals. Right? This is what the human race becomes. Like animalistic is appetite. Paul uses that word a few times. That their God is, I think it's in Philippians 3, where he says their God is their appetite. And so it's from one thing to another. One, this will fulfill. Then I get you know full of that for a bit. Then I go after something else and something else. Just like animals do. Like unreasonable animals, and here he's talking about false teachers, having eyes full of adultery. Right? Eyes full of adultery. And that also comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Jesus said, if you look at her to lust for her, you have committed it. Where does adultery begin? It begins in the eye. And that's the eye of the soul, but also our physical eye. We're attracted to the thing, and we're fooled in our heart that the thing is going to make us happy. Having eyes full of adultery and never cease, and that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the way, the right way, sorry, they have gone astray. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. All right, the discontent. These are this description is of an obviously discontent person, ruled by their appetite. And what are you going to get if you keep filling your physical and mental appetite? You'll get full, and then you'll get hungry, and then you get full, and then you get hungry, and you're like you're just tossed around from one thing to the next, and never satisfied. God wants to deliver us from this, you know, really rat in a maze kind of life. Always thinking we're going to get to the end. So to be content is to be satisfied with God's provisions under His will and not to desire other things outside of His will. It's very simple. Whatever I have right now is what God has given me. Whatever I have that has been attained by sin, God has not given me. Whatever I have that I have attained by forsaking him, God has not given me. And those things we have to cut ourselves off from. You know, what if, what if I have forsaken God in the pursuit of money? You know, I, I, I don't have time for God. I don't have time for His Word. I don't have time for my family even, right? I don't have time to fulfill the dictates of, the, of God as He says to me in my role, say, as a husband. But I'm in the pursuit of money. That What I have to do is cut myself off from that. And I'll get the courage to do it from God's Word. I'll get the courage to do the right thing in the right way when I have faith in what God tells me, His will. And I say, well, if I stop pursuing this money, maybe I'll lose the big house or the white picket fence. Or maybe my dreams won't come true. And God says, seriously, those are your dreams. You know, if those dreams don't come true, and my dreams, God says, that I have for you do come true, do you think you're going to be at a loss there? Do you think that goes into the lost column? And it obviously does not. God says, I have prepared for you things that are exceeding abundantly beyond anything you could ask or think. And you're going to forsake that for a particular kind of house or a particular lifestyle or a particular job or a particular number on your computer screen when you open up your bank account. It makes me wonder, you know, the guys like guys like uh, the ultra billionaires in our world. I don't think there's a trillionaire yet, is there? Who knows? Musk, maybe. 
Do you think they check their bank accounts? They're like, ooh, look at those zeros. <laughs> they probably don't. They don't care. They don't care. They have so much. It's not. It's it's gone. That part of their lives, that's gone. But yet we still see in them. I'm I'm not saying all of them. I don't even know them. But we see, and in, in the scripture describes the rich as constantly in pursuit of riches. Now they already have so much. Why do they keep pursuing more? And it's because they're never satisfied. Eyes full of adultery and never cease from sin. God's the only one who can satisfy our hearts. That's a, a, a wonderful a PragerU video about a, a girl who's an atheist. They do uh, PragerU does interviews with people. Where they're wonderful um, testimonies of people who have come to God. Uh, there's a few of them. There was one particular YouTube channel that does interviews with Jews who have come to Christ. Those are super cool. And there's one, the ones in PragerU about people, you know, sometimes they're based on politics and people changing their ways, but some, uh, there's a few of them that are based on people becoming Christians. And the one I saw today um, was about a girl who was an atheist, brought up an atheist, you know, was very sinful and kind of threw her whole life away and hit rock bottom and thought that was the end for her. You know, there was no, there was no hope from there. And then... She found Christ and everything changed. And she changed. You know, and, and so in that case, that's a girl who's a person whose knowledge was actually not cheap, whose knowledge was actually powerful. It's the same knowledge that you and I have. Uh, and I'm sure it's not for us either, you know, unpowerful. But it has to be mixed with faith. And by faith, when we hear these things, we have to do them. You know, if I hear from God, do not pursue the things of the world, but pursue the things of heaven, and I say, yeah, that's a great point, God, thank you, and then I go back to my lifestyle, continuing to pursue the things of the earth, then my knowledge has not been mixed with faith or conviction. And then it's useless. It's just knowledge. So contentment now is hope in the future. It's it's a perfect word for hope because, you know, what is tomorrow going to be? You know, I have an idea. You know, maybe. I just thought, I'm so dumb. I, 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 I sit up here and I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, what is my tomorrow? You know, that, that's not a part of my message. The, the, you know, what is my tomorrow about? I, I don't know. What exactly is going to happen? I, I'm, I have an idea. Maybe it'll go the way that I think it will. But does it matter how it goes? And, and according to Christ's word, he said, look, don't even worry about tomorrow. Yeah, why? Your father knows that you need these things, and he's going to provide them. Not only is he going to provide you with your physical needs, to, so that you're content, that provide you with the needs that your mind has so that you're content there. But with these things content, you have the opportunity to pursue a spiritual life that is beyond dreams. Because what all the world is worried about, you're not. And that's the way he puts it. He says the Gentiles, the unbelievers, the people of the nations, they worry about these things. What they're going to eat, what they're going to drink, what they're going to wear. And at their time, that was a much more um, uh, 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 absorbing question because in the first century, you know, in the Bible, in Palestine, if a drought comes, uh, they, they, you know, they, they don't have uh, the provisions that we do now in the modern world. Uh, you and I are not going to starve. We know that for a fact. I mean, even if you became homeless, there's plenty of places that you can get food. That you will get it for free. You're not going to starve. You might get thinner. Not you, Learn. <laughs> I would. I'd, I'd lose a lot of weight. But I, I would. I would not die. Right? We don't have to. Am I going to run out of water? Is water got to? No. You know, it's a one in a million chance. And man, even I was in Hawaii, uh, in Arizona before that. I've been a world traveler lately, you know. 
by, uh, by, by blessing. And in every place I have longed for Oregon tap water. I love the water here. It ta- our, our water in Dallas tastes like bottled water. But anyway, what was I saying? See, I keep messing this up. Are we, we're, we are going to be provided with everything, and therefore we can look at tomorrow with great hope. What is tomorrow going to bring? It's going to be more of my pursuit with God. It's going to be more understanding of God, maybe even just a little. But even if I don't understand more about him, I'm going to walk with him. Because I don't have to worry about everything else. And that's what hope is. Hope is a confidence in the future. And seeing a confident and bright future because of God's grace and mercy and love, that is a contentment of hope. And it's actually a dream. You know, as, as James puts it here, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Consider it joy, even when you're in trials. Notice he says when. It's exactly how the Greek puts it. He doesn't say if. It's not if. You're going to have trials when. So James is clear, as the rest of the Bible is, that as believers, we're all going to experience suffering and trial, tribulation, hard times. But then James says this curious thing, to consider all of it joy. Notice the word various. And as I studied this passage, I was very grateful for that word because, you know, this really opens it up. What's a, what's a trial? You know, anything that you are struggling against right now, even if it's temptation to sin from the flesh, in essence, that's a trial. Right? It's, a, it's a testing of your faith. Giving into the flesh becomes sin. But when you recover from that or repent from that with confession, then you know, you're, you're back in it. You're back walking with God. And the next temptation which comes, which is sure to come, is going to be your next trial. Uh, Dealing with people who are tempting you to lose your peace is your next trial. Uh, Whatever situation. And it's it's various. There's so many kinds. And there's so many kinds that we couldn't actually categorize them all. But there are sureties. James here says, consider it joy when it occurs. Why? Well, there's a promise. And a fulfilled promise is a dream come true. Your faith produces endurance. And in the book of James, he uses endurance several times in his book. He uses two different words, hupomone, that we're familiar with. That's endurance with circumstances. There's another word, makrothumia, which is a Greek word that always is used in the context of enduring with people. And it's interesting. James uses both words. And, you know, he's got endure with people. That is your kindness with people, your love of others, your forgiveness of others. And then endure with circumstances, dealing with the trials, which come from people and circumstances. And so, again, when I pray every day, God give us today our daily bread, it refers to all our needs that God provides. And I say when I pray that, well... I must be satisfied with what you give. Now, here come the discontented ones. And interestingly enough, as Paul writes in 1 Timothy, uh, he speaks of discontented ones who are, uh, well, at least professing to be Christians. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. But look at 1 Timothy 6.3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has a morbid interest in controversial questions, disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. Notice that description. Uh, They have uh, advocated different doctrines. Don't don't agree with sound words in verse 3. 
And therefore, you know, they, they're teaching and believing false things. And what do those false things do? Well, first off, they're mixed with verse 4. He is conceited and understands nothing. So they're dumb and they're prideful. Conceited means to be proud about what you are or what you know or what you have. And they have false doctrines. They don't understand anything and they're proud. And what does this make in them? Morbid interest. And in this case, controversial questions. I mean, how many people do you know that want to, love to, argue the silliest things? And all they want to do is win the argument. Why is that? I'm not content. I, I would hope, and, and at least over time, that you and I would become the people that when, if we were discussing something with someone and they were right and we were wrong, that we would able to be able to say, thank you. Thanks for teaching me. I didn't know that. I thought this was true, but you showed me something else. Thank you. Instead of just trying to you know, win the argument. And, and also the kind of people who, when the person on the other side of the table or on the other side of the aisle, and you know you're speaking truth, and they will not accept it. That we would not hate or, or, or you know, have anger or anything other than gentleness and saying, look, I'll pray for you. I, I hope you come to see what I see to be true. And to actually still love them. But what do we have here? We have conceit and stupidity that ends up with morbid interests and controversial questions and disputes about words even, out of which arise envy. Why envy? Oh, he's smarter than me. He won the argument. He always wins the argument. Back in the Greek world, debaters and those who could win debates because they had great oration, not because they knew truth, but they could orate. This is why Paul said to the Corinthians, I came to you not with persuasive words, because the Corinthians loved that. You know, that's the Corinthians, a Greek, a metropolitan Greek city, in which in the in the Corinthian square there would be professional debaters that people would go and see. And they didn't have Netflix or something. You know, so what are they going to go and be entertained with? They would go watch the big wigs argue with one another. And then, you know, the the somebody who thought they could argue would go in there into the square, and then the professional arguer would be like, Yeah, let's argue. And the fans would just love to see the one put the other one down. Why? Because one was true and one was false? I didn't care about that. What they wanted to see was the kill. Even though it was mental. It was mental. And that's why arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. And notice this last part, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now, in the context of this passage, gain means material gain. It means gold. It means money. Paul reveals that this particular group think that the church is actually a source of material gain. And that has not changed, has it? There are plenty involved in the Christian church, whether they're Christian or not, I don't know, who are after gain. Not See, there's a gain of godliness, which is what? Godliness. And that's what we should want for our churches. That's what a pastor should want for his church. Godliness for himself and godliness for his people. But what is so easily can happen is that the pastor is absorbed with how much money the church has, how many people the church has, how recognized they are. And in now, in our age, how many hits do we get for every video we post on the Internet? How many hits? How many people are watching? Are they watching the whole thing? Are we popular out there in the Internet world? And see, those are things that are not of godliness. Now, it would be great if our message that was only about godliness was watched by millions of people. 
But if we, let's say it was, let's say this was the hallmark message, right, right here, that it got put on the Internet, somebody told someone about it, it got passed around, and it got a million views by tomorrow, we'd be popular. It'd be an overnight sensation. I mean, that's how it works now. We could actually ask for ad advertising. They probably wouldn't give it to us, though, because we're Christians. <laughs> they would they would de they would defund the message or something. I don't know. But we could actually ad ask for ads on YouTube if we had that many hits, that many watches. Let's say it was. Uh, you know, we sh we would all rejoice about that. But if what we cared about was how much money we were going to make, how many people we were going to get, if that was the main concern. What our concern would be is we want to fill this place so that the people can become godly. The people can become Christ-like. That's what we want. But here in this passage, and, and the reason I emphasize this is because it's clear that these people, whoever they are, that, that you know, uh, he's writing to Timothy. Timothy's in Ephesus at the time that this is written to him, so... There's some in Ephesus who are involved in the church, in the Christian church, who think that being in the church is going to be a source of monetary profit or you know, what, what, else, what else people want is to be noticed, the profit of being noticed, or the profit of power. Paul reveals that discontented people are always looking for something other than godliness. This, the, the, the irony here is quite thick. They suppose that godliness, which is actually a, a really a renunciation of all material things, like our Lord. Did our Lord care about material things? Not at all. I mean, he gave the money back to Judas, who was stealing out of it, and he knew it. Uh, so, <clears throat> though we may have wealth, or whether we don't have wealth, we're of the mind. What godliness says is the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the what of the Lord? The name of the Lord. Holy be his name. So, um, you know, people could be, say, let's build a church. Let's build a Christian organization, a nonprofit. Let's build a school. Let's build a seminary. So we can get lots of people and big offerings and people will know who we are. We'll be on the map and all these people will come to us, which is fine if we can define what we want to give them when they come. See, in a lot of situations, they want people to come so they can take from the people. We want people to come so we can give them something and we can give them something that's priceless. That is not of this world. That is of heaven. So the question here becomes, when it comes to contentment, is what are you offering? You know, the, the other thing that's clear about contented people is that they're gracious. Because I'm content. If, you know, I, I, I have what I need, if I have extra... And I see someone in need, I, I'm, I'm not going to hold on to it. I, I don't care to have big stores, and, and meaning stores of, of savings. I mean, it's fine if I do. It's good to save. But if I see someone in need and I turn my back on them, it's a legitimate need. Not the guy in the street who's asking you for money for drugs. I don't see that as a need. It breaks my heart to see them. It's just, it's, for those of you online, you don't. Maybe you have them in your area, but we have a lot of them here in the Northwest, homeless people, and a lot of them are drug addicts. And uh, I, I don't see that giving them money so that they could put junk in their arms is actually giving, uh, gracious giving. But you, you know, like you never know. You can't interview them. As plus, if you ask, do you really use drugs? And they'll be like, oh no, you know, they're not going to tell you. Uh, so it's, diff it's difficult here to, to see who's legit poor and who's just lazy and giving into an addiction. But, you know, and there's a thing coming up here. I don't have time for it now, but I, I had it coming that uh, the poor in the Bible are always legit poor. 
because there's no welfare system. There's no welfare system in first century. Uh, if you're poor or you're a slave, it's legit hardship. And if you don't work, you definitely don't eat. You starve to death. They don't care. And it, the Bible says it, right? Paul writes, it, even in the church, if people are able to work, if they don't work, they don't eat. Right? The Bible gets right to the heart of the matter. But in the Bible, the poor are legit poor. But anyway, I get myself distracted here. I'm trying to sum this up. I hate when I have this. I'm like midpoint, time's up. Right? Things have kind of warmed up in here. Is it me or? I don't know. The heat wasn't working. I'm all over the place. <laughs> so maybe I have jet lag. Maybe that's it. I don't know. I'll blame that. Um, so what? We'll close with this, right? With just what we finished with. Discontented people are always looking for something else. Even discontented Christians think godliness is meant for something else. Great gain of what? You missed it. Godliness has the gain of godliness. Right? Godliness is the gain. Godliness is the end goal. It's not a stepping stone to something else. And people miss it. Therefore, you degrade godliness or really spiritual living. You degrade that below the bread or the money or whatever else that you want. You say it's less important. All right, that's enough out of me. Even if I am midpoint, I have to stop. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the promise of prayer by which we know that you will provide our need. We know, Father, that we are always tempted by the want for more, the want for something else. We're attracted in our eyes of our soul for things that we shouldn't have or that you have not willed for us to have. And that we must uh, say no to those things and look away. We ask, Father, that you keep our minds clarified and alert to that which tempts us to not be content so that we can move on to really pursue the spiritual life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please tell us why.